Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., we are in quarantine. Yes, we are. We are staying very far away from each other. Yes. We are recording this in a basketball gymnasium. You are under one hoop. <laughs> I am under the other. <laughs> Just waving at each other from across <laughs> the way. Not true. But we actually, we're about, what, five feet? Uh-huh. How far can a germ go? Six feet. Shoot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've not shown any symptoms, and Neither Betsy has kept me in the house. She makes me wear oven mittens and have a paper bag over my head yep. most times. At all times, as she should. Yeah. As she should. <laughs> but honestly, she was doing that before the virus. I was going to say. <laughs> no, real, no real new news there. <laughs> JJ, we have figured out a lot in the weeks since this virus took over the country. Yeah. We've figured a lot about our company. Yep. I'm curious, what have been your revelations about our company since the economic and health shutdown? I mean, some of it wasn't too surprising, but it's really fun to see happen in real time is Mm -hmm. we're really quick at pivoting. So pivoting our message, pivoting our message and pivoting our products, you know, in the story brand framework, it's all about solving your customer's problem. Well, (laughs) problem just changed. Problem changed. Then our product changes because I think our product became much more relevant. uh, I would agree. I would agree. And so I think that's one thing I discovered really quickly is we're good at pivoting both our message and our product, and we do it quickly yeah. with over Zoom, yeah. <laughs> over Zoom calls. <laughs> Every morning. Um, another fun thing for me is watching our whole team kind of fight for each other, yes. right? Like just come together. It's so, and, so invigorating. And, you know, nobody's looking at this as vacation. Everybody no. is like... And nobody took victim mindset either. Nope. Nobody went there. Everybody's just right in the heart of everything. Like, and everybody's giving new ideas and helping each other out and... Um, communicating even stronger. I mean, it's really been, you know, not that I would have wished this on anybody or us even in particular, but our team, it's been fun to watch who we've become even in this moment. Yeah. I've noticed that we had a lot of overhead in areas that we never noticed before. Yeah. And so when we actually stopped doing some things, we started realizing, oh, wow, that was costing us a lot of money. Yeah. Like I would have actually guessed that our actual overhead during the shutdown would have been 25 to 50% higher than it actually was. But because we shut down some things, I realized, oh, we can run a much leaner ship. Yeah, And that's actually caused us to create some new revenue streams that we'll be announcing in the fall. Yeah, uh, It's caused me to create very strategic and detailed plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, by the end of this shutdown, we will have a whole business strategy map of everything we're doing to make money, all of our revenue streams, then lay over the top of that map everything that we're doing to promote Mm -hmm. those revenue streams, and then lay over the top of of that map every single person and their job description. Yeah. And you look at that company, the new company that will come out of this, and it's leaner, it's more relevant. In other words, this thing can benefit you if you let it, Yeah. right? And so one of the reasons I wanted to have Joel Peterson on the show today is because he's got a book called Entrepreneurial Leadership that – honestly, could just be reskinned on how to regrow your business. Yeah. How to build it back up the right way. Yeah. You get to do this again. So let's be optimists here. You get to do this again, yeah. right? You had a dental practice. Now you're out of money. You're out of business. You are you know, may have even gone bankrupt or something like that. You're not going to stop being a dentist. Yeah. You've got to rebuild. Yeah. You got to do something to rebuild. And what if you did it the right way. Yeah. We were living in this sort of luxurious world where we didn't have to do marketing, we didn't have to have a sales funnel. By the way, if you didn't have a if you didn't do what we told you to do 3 years ago, you're paying for it now. Yeah. And now you got you got to do it. And you, gotta, you still can. Now. And you still can. You, <laughs> you got to create a marketing <laughs> funnel, you got to create a sales funnel. 
JJ and I wrote a book called Marketing Made Simple. That's not a plug for the book, but go get it because it's the best book ever written. A lot of people think it's better than East of Eden. I do. East of Eden kind of bogged in the middle. You know, Ours it, just gets more exciting. Every chapter is page turner after page and turner. And the honest truth, finished East of Eden, thought it was great, had no idea how to make a sales funnel. <laughs> that is true. True story. You did not know how to grow Grapes your business. Grapes of Wrath, same crap. Can't build a sales funnel. Very entertaining. Anyway, so, you, you know, you got to be able to do this stuff. And I, so I wanted to have Joel on. Joel is the chairman of JetBlue Airlines, but he's also out at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. He teaches a class at Stanford. Hoover Institute puts together a podcast called uh, Uncommon Knowledge. It's one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. Nigel Green turned me on that podcast. Thank you, Nigel. And I really like it. And so he's out of a group of smart guys, and uh, they're incredible leadership. And, you know, to be honest, I kind of thought this would be an interview where we just kind of hash out things that we've already talked about on this show uh, over and over. Very, very different perspective. Yeah. Very heartfelt perspective and an incredible leader. So I was really inspired by this. If you were wondering how you were going to rebuild or how you were going to build it differently this time because you've been given opportunities, this podcast is going to be very special for you. So here is my conversation with the author of Entrepreneurial Leadership, Mr. Joel Peterson. Joel Peterson, thanks for coming on. Nice to be on, Don. You've got a book called Entrepreneurial Leadership that I imagine is going to take on a different kind of life here because people are now rebuilding their companies, uh, many of them after experiencing maybe a challenge or a setback. And a lot of us, I think, you know, with our companies, when coronavirus crisis hit and, you know, the recession kind of took over and we're climbing back out, we cut a lot of stuff out of our companies that probably never should have been there in the first place, and it gives us this psychological opportunity to rebuild. And that's one way to look at your book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. Here's how to rebuild the thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think in some ways everybody's going to have to become an entrepreneurial leader. That's really right. Think about the market in new ways. Think about customers. Think about their own team members and, and really apply many of the principles, uh, not something we would have chosen but uh, there may be a silver lining in this cloud. Well, let me ask you maybe an obvious question. As chairman of JetBlue Airways, I wouldn't consider that an entrepreneurial position. I mean, you're managing a really large existing organization. How did you bring the entrepreneurial flair to an airline like that? And why was an entrepreneurial skill set so valuable? Well, if you think about uh, entrepreneurs like fires, they innovate, they create new things. Entrepreneurial leaders actually turn that into something durable. So it's beyond being an entrepreneur. They have the skills of several uh, kinds of leaders. And so the entrepreneurial leader, to me, is the more complete leader than the pure entrepreneur. Hmm. So what I'm trying to do is introduce this notion of what it takes to be an entrepreneurial leader. And you'll notice in the book, I use examples such as Alan Mulally, who ran Boeing and Ford, or Stan McChrystal, who was the Joint Special Operations Command General, who led all the special forces. So uh, these are not things you would normally think of as entrepreneurs, but they were very much entrepreneurial leaders. They were innovators. Uh, They built high trust, they created teams, they achieved goals uh, in ways that entrepreneurial leaders do that pure presiders or politicians typically don't do. Do you see uh, Steve Jobs, for instance, being more entrepreneurial than Tim Cook? You know, two different kinds of leadership. Is is that fair to say that that one was more entrepreneurial? Steve Jobs was more entrepreneurial in terms of his leadership style 
than Tim Cook and so that we could just denote the difference? Yeah, I think uh, particularly early in his career, Steve Jobs was a pure entrepreneur. He really didn't understand that much about leading an organization. I do think he learned a lot over time. He retained some of his uh, idiosyncrasies, let's call them that, that I think uh, he would have been more effective had he actually addressed them. Um, but Tim Cook, I think, is is entrepreneurial, but he's much more of an entrepreneurial leader, a more mm. complete leader. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you would you would put him higher on the list in terms of entrepreneurial leadership. You'd put Tim Cook higher than Steve Jobs. Is that right? Yeah, I think he's a more complete leader. That's really fascinating. Do you think, uh, in result, that Tim Cook could produce something better than Steve Jobs did? I think he could produce something more durable. You huh. know, he's got a company that's worth a trillion dollars or was, and that, that's a different drill than creating the Macintosh computer in your garage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about how we can become more entrepreneurial, uh, uh, more like entrepreneurial leaders. And the first thing that you say in your book is you build trust. And you build trust first by assessing your core values. On page five, you say unwavering values allows one to behave predictably, which is requisite for building trust. Therefore, aspiring entrepreneurial leaders should conduct a deep and introspective inventory of their core values, affirming the ones that will help them as leaders and seeking to temper the ones that will be counterproductive. You're not just talking about company values. You're talking about your own core values as a human being. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, it start, leadership starts with character. And you write and talk a lot about brands. Well, a brand is just a delivery of, on a promise. Mm. And people trust brands that deliver predictably on promises. And really, uh, if you're going to have an, a whole organization become effective, the people in, on the teams, on the various teams, have to be able to predict what the leader is going to want. And that is typically derivative of values that are unwavering. And uh, then they are empowered. They can make decisions confident that their decision will be supported by the leader. Where you have a mercurial leader, one who's not sure of values, basically they retain all the power. Hmm. And they've not really empowered the team. And their brand is one that you don't trust and the team doesn't trust. So to me, it starts out with how do I build this currency of trust? And the way I do that is by understanding my values that are unwavering and communicating those to my team so that they have the confidence to make the, the decisions I would make. Can you give me some examples of, of values that you've heard people uh, explain that, uh, that you've thought those are really good? Well, you know, to me, uh, it's kind of company dependent. I think a lot of people get confused about values and they, they list virtues. The first one that I hear people use is integrity. Yeah, well, everybody would agree with that. That's a virtue. I know. I, I always say that's. A, I say we have a place for people who don't who don't have integrity. It's called prison. So let's move beyond that yeah. and go on to something else. I think there's some givens. Your values are where you spend your time, where hmm. you spend your money, uh, what your priorities are, where your mind goes. Those are really your values. You may not like it, but I think if you really want to assess where your values are, think about where you spent the last week, what you did. What did you do when you had nothing else to do? Those really are your values. They're your priorities. And I think it takes some real introspection to really figure out what your values are. And the reason that we want to identify those values is because they're naturally going to play into our strengths, right? Yes. And that's where we should be spending more of our time and then disseminating those values, finding like-minded people who feel the same way. It just means there's going to be more chemistry between us. We're going to be more productive. Is that true? Yes. I, so I think in many ways, what I talk about is you want diversity in optics, in ways of going about things and ideas, but you want 
shared values. You don't want to be on a different sheet of music. Mm. You want to play different instruments, but you want to be playing from the same sheet of music. Okay, well, once we have our values, and again, we're reverse engineering, we're just building our company from the ground up the right way this time, if we've lost uh, some progress in our growth. The next thing after we create our values is we create a mission. And you talk about the four ideas that we need to remember when creating a mission, finding meeting, setting memorable alignment, doability goals, building alignment, and crafting a culture. You included a lot in the idea of a mission. It's beyond just a mission statement. And Joel, I wonder if you if you would agree with me. Most corporate mission statements are horrible. They're just horrible. <laughs> they actually create cynicism. <laughs> I'm one of those cynics. Yeah, because, I mean, people frame this high-minded thing posted on the wall, and then people don't behave in a way that's consistent with it, <laughs> so they create cynicism. The only way to have a, a really meaningful mission is to have people craft it. Hmm. You know, it, they have to own it. In the end, they have to discuss it. They have to share it. They have to measure themselves against it, and that becomes really their mission. And from that, they have meaning. Meaning is a really powerful thing. You know, if people are working for meaning, you can count on them doing heroic things. You've studied Viktor Frankl, I'm sure. Sure. And, you know, his logotherapy and his his sort of formula for creating an an experiential sense of meaning. How do you embed that into an organization with a mission statement? How do you make a mission statement meaningful? So I think at a very granular level, I think you start out by asking the question, what are the five words we would like to be known for? In other words, what is our promise to the marketplace, to our customers, to each other? And while it sounds trivial, debating those words, getting those words right really matters because there are nuances. And uh, so I think it's really important. And then what happens is you start collecting stories around those words and you celebrate behaviors and you reward them, and you have fun with them. And that that really becomes a mission. It becomes a sense of meaning. I'm actually going to assign that to my team. What are the five words we want to be known for? I've never done that before. That's actually fantastic. Then you talk about once we've got our mission and we understand what our mission is, you actually have to set memorable goals. And uh, you have a formula that's called MAD, Memorable Alignment and Doability. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So, you know, there's something about getting a phrase that people can recall. A lot of times, you know, you, you and I talked about this mission statement that's uh, posted on the wall. Mm-hmm. Nobody can recite it. No. <laughs> well, it says something about integrity and something else. Nobody can recite that. But if you if you really get a meaningful uh, mission, uh, people can recite. Everybody has, a, has a, a line of sight from their job to that mission. At JetBlue, we talked about bringing humanity back to air travel. Hmm. That's real. Yeah, it's beautiful. That was a powerful notion because typically people felt like cattle in cattle cars going on the various carriers. So we this was a differentiator. And at some point in time, we basically said, uh, let's make our mission serving humanity. Hmm. And at first that sounded a little bit high minded. But then we started devoting time to our communities, planting trees, doing hurricane relief. And last year, we celebrated a million uh, hours that we had given, our crew members had given to our communities. Well, that was meaningful. Yeah. So serving humanity actually helped us attract better people, keep them, create a sense of of, uh, community and of mission. 
I think that's a great example of, of doing just what we're talking about. Creating a sense of meaning, too. Bringing humanity back to is, is better than just saving people money getting to Tahoe, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so if, if we have created our personal mission statement and our goals and understand our core values, it's time to bring people onto the journey, right? Start putting people onto the bus. And so you have a whole section in your book about securing a team and hiring great people. And you actually have a list of mistakes that we can make. And one of them I'm very curious about, I'd love to expand on the idea that it's a mistake to keep hiring yourself over and over. What do you mean when you say hiring yourself? Well, we're almost comfortable with people who are most like us. Mm. If you've gone to the same school, studied the same things, maybe you're the same faith, you may be from the same area of the country, you know, whatever, you keep repeating yourself. And so you you may be building on the things that are you're strong on, but you're also building on your weaknesses and you're limiting your optic. You know, there's this term in uh, navigation called triangulation. Mm-hmm. You get to the to where you want to go by triangulating. Triangulating means that you're looking at something from a different optic. You get a more 3D view of something. And I think with diversity, having people with different points of view, you actually put together a team that triangulates, that creates a better outcome. And unless you're looking for uh, people outside of your normal milieu, Mm -hmm. this will never happen. You know, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten, and I've passed it along to many, is hire your liabilities. Staff your liabilities. Staff the things that you are weak in. And of course, if you don't know what you're weak in, you can't you can't staff, so it all starts there. A few years ago, uh, when Peter Drucker was still living, we used to go out and see him at Claremont. I didn't get to know him well, but I remember asking him a question. I said, you know, I'm not good at this thing. How do I get better at this? And he said... Uh, build on your strengths and make your weaknesses irrelevant. In other words, hire to your liabilities. Like you were saying, find somebody to do them. Take the place where you are really strong and go to that and make it stronger and stronger and stronger and make sure the people you're hiring can fill where you're weak. Well, you've got some great advice here also to build on it that we, that we can all understand. Don't hire the resume, right? Make sure you get to know the person. Uh, don't fail to do in-depth interviews. Don't be lazy in your reference checking. But then you've got one that I'm kind of curious about. Don't freeze out your team. Does that mean involve your entire team when you make a hire? Anybody that is uh, may have a direct reporting relationship to the hire or be influenced by them, I think you really, again, you triangulate. I don't think they have to have a vote necessarily, but I think to include them, they'll be more supportive. There's nothing worse than having somebody hired in and say, this is your new boss. Yeah, It's the worst. People feel uh, that they've not been respected in the whole process. I think it's a mistake to say we're all going to get together and vote on this, but I do think it's a mistake not to get their input. I also think it's a mistake not to give them an assignment, say, why don't you visit with them about X, Y, or Z? Help me understand how they're doing on on various uh, measures. It's such a fountain of wisdom that we don't often tap into. We think we're the only ones who have to make that decision. Exactly. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Joel Peterson in just a moment. But before we finish talking, many of you have listened to this podcast for a long time and you've said to yourself, I want to write one of these books. I want to be on that podcast. Well, you got to write a book first and that can be really difficult, but I am going to teach you how to write. If you go to donaldmillerteacheswriting.com right now, just because of the coronavirus, I'm actually able to put together some content and teach everything I know 
about writing. And I'm going to cover how to write a book. In fact, if you get the VIP package, I will send you a video called The Psychology of Writing a Book. Most writers don't fail because it's hard or because they're not good enough. They fail for psychological reasons. So I'm going to walk you through about seven of the psychological hurdles that you have to jump through in order to actually finish a book. But it's not just for book writers. In fact, most of it isn't for book writers. It's actually for people who write Instagram posts. It's actually for people who write emails, sales emails. It's actually great for people who are marketers. How do you start a sentence? How do you start a paragraph? How do you end a paragraph? How do you end a chapter? What should your subject lines be? Why do some Instagram posts get read and others don't? It's all the same techniques, whether you're writing a book or an Instagram post, whether you're writing long form or short form, I'm going to teach you how to write. Go to donaldmillerteacheswriting.com and on April 28th, thousands of us will come together. I'll be in my living room, you'll be in yours, and we are going to learn the one skill that if you know how to do it well, it will make you deadly, both in life and in your career. I'm serious. If you know how to write, you are unstoppable. Go to donaldmillerteacheswriting.com. I can't wait to teach you how to write. donaldmillerteacheswriting.com. All right, you've got several more here, and you'll have to get the book. It's Entrepreneurial Leadership in order to read more about what Joel's, Joel – he has some great perspectives on hiring. Once people come on, though, uh, we want to help them improve. We want to continue coaching them. You know, help me understand this, Joel. You know, my company is about 24 employees, and early, early, early on, I realized that it was a mistake to think that I could hire somebody who would rescue me. And what I mean by that is I don't know how to do this. I can't figure it out. I'm just going to hire somebody else who understands it. They'll figure it out, and I can do my own thing. And then I can kind of leave them alone and not have to be involved in their lives. And that never worked. And so it took a long time to sort of figure out the relationship that I would need to have with a new hire in order to solve some of the problems they were hired to solve. And you've got several points here on helping people improve. Uh, One of them is don't wing it. Lean positive, be specific. Can you go into your process a little bit once somebody comes on board, how you interact with them? So I think one of the most important things you do is coach. And a lot of coaching is giving feedback. And a lot of the best practices in giving feedback are doing it in the moment. And what I typically do is uh, ask somebody if I may have their permission to, uh, in the moment, give them some feedback. And by the way, they always say yes. Nobody that you bring on says, no, no, I don't want any feedback. Right, yeah. But there's something nice about asking them for permission to do that. And then I think you just pull them aside and say, did you notice that when this happened, such and such happened, your team turned off or the person that you were selling to became less interested? Let's talk about that. I think this idea of giving feedback at the end of the year, a performance review, and that's your coaching, that's your feedback is really a bankrupt idea. There, there's a place for it, but I think feedback in the moment, particularly during the first six months or so, and feedback can be two ways. And I think it's often best if you say, you know, what am I doing that's helping or not helping? How might I change and be more helpful? So you have this dialogue that also develops a relationship and relationships are powerful. In the end, teams are built on relationship, on trust relationships. And it's that kind of feedback and coaching that builds that. And it can be fun. Joel, how did you learn to give feedback? Were you, were you always just naturally good at it? You know, we've got a, the president of my company, a guy named Doug Kime, came to us from Cox Communications, and he's, 
used to running multi-billion dollar companies, and he's thankfully with us now. He's just excellent at feedback. I mean, he can really give you a critical review and you leave encouraged. And I'm watching him going, how are you doing that? Because most of the time I'm just kind of going, look, you did this wrong. I don't want you to do it that way. I want you to do it this way. Yeah. Right? And so I'm learning that's not effective. Right. So how did you figure that out? Was there a story or a process or somebody that came into your life that helped you understand how to do that? I remember watching a guy who was a fabulous sales guy pull together a team that, the, of several people after it and say, what went well? Here's where I think I blew it. And he would give a self-criticism first, and mm. he was spot on. And then it opened up for everybody else to say, well, I think I could have done this, that, or I wasn't prepared, or my, my slides were too detailed or whatever. And everybody became really open and honest with it. And I watched him do this several times to the point that it became fun. People looked forward to the to kind of the uh, coaching session after. And uh, so I started to do that and and found that I could uh, I could do it well. And I, I, one of the things I learned was that he leaned positive. You know, he would give people positive, he would celebrate. He'd pull people aside and say, boy, you did a great job on that. That was such, a, such an effective way, the way that you ran that meeting or the, how you closed that deal. Or I noticed you you did X, Y, or Z. And, and I think once you give a bunch of positive feedback, you can pull somebody aside and say, you know, I noticed that this wasn't working so well. How did you feel about it? And you can kind of work your way through it. So it's just watching great coaches. I think great coaches inspire you to be better. You want to be better for them. You talk about keeping it cool. And I would imagine what you're saying is, you know, don't let this thing get antagonistic. Don't let this thing get heated. I think there's a lot of people listening that when they have to give critical feedback, they don't exactly know how to do it without framing it as an attack, right? Or as a condemnation or a judgment. You know, in Cartman's uh, drama triangle of, uh, what is it, persecutor, rescuer, victim, you know, they don't know how to do it without becoming the persecutor. And you let go one technique there that, that I, I'm not sure if it's in the book, it's not in your outline, but you actually talk about uh, just a second ago posing it as a question. You know, is there anything that we could have done better or something like that? I think a lot of people would feel like, well, I'm just being manipulative. What I really want to say is stop, you know, doing this and I'm beating around the bush and why don't I just say it? Uh, I guess I'm fishing, Joel, for more techniques on how to offer feedback and coach a team without becoming uh, overbearing. I found that uh, you don't need to be timid in it. I can come to you and say, you know, there's something that is troubling me in the way this our relationship is developing or in the way that you're doing this job. I want to share this with you. Your job is not at stake over this. However, you will need to make some improvement. I want to start working on the following thing. So you can you can do that. And and uh, and, and I think if you're specific, uh, for example, in that case, I would say, uh, did you notice in the last uh, sales meeting you did the following things? You also say in the book, if it's serious, you need to say so. Yeah, if it's serious, you say, you know, if you if this change isn't made, we are going to have to make a change. So I want you to know this is serious. So I think just being direct, being specific, uh, giving people coaching and feedback along the way. You know, I think one of the main things is in the end, if you want their success, they'll feel that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the key. That is the key, isn't it? Yep. Yep. And I think a lot of people defer it because they hate so much this thing. I actually have an entrepreneur that comes into class every year, and she says, um, I hate so much giving negative feedback or, uh, you know, coaching. 
my pr- approach is, I love you, I love you, I love you. Now get out of here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember taking your class, but that sounds like me a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't fire people like that. Let me ask you this, though. You're a driven human being. You're extremely successful. You must be competitive to get where you are. How do you handle the relationship between, and I'm going to probably butcher the way I asked this question, but how do you handle the relationship between loving your goals, loving progress, loving success, and loving people? How do you handle that relationship? Well, I think business all start, business is a team sport and you win as a team. People love to win. And I think if you can help them win and it not be about you, I think a lot of times people confuse competitiveness with egotism, Hmm. that I have to win. It has to be about me. I think one of the most important lessons I learned in life was it is not about me. It is about the team. It is about the mission. And if you can drill that into your head so that you really are saying we win together and really I'm a fiduciary for you. I want you to win. My whole job as a leader is to help my team win. Then you can be competitive, but you're competitive in a broader sense. And I, and I think how you, how broadly you define your community is how broadly you think about issues. Well, let's talk about winning for a second. There are 10 areas in which you actually provide practical tips, common pitfalls to avoid, uh, mindsets to have. And I'm wondering if you would consider these the 10 skill sets of a great business leader or maybe even the 10 things that you've got to learn in order to win. One is how to make decisions. Two is how to sell. Three is how to negotiate. Four is how to raise capital. Five is how to communicate. Six is how to run great meetings. Seven, how to use a board effectively. Eight, how to overcome adversity. Nine, how to survive growth, which is fascinating. Ten is how to drive change. Why did you choose these ten? Because I believe every single entrepreneurial leader will run into these 10. I tried to pick the 10 things that I thought every were universal. Right, doesn't matter if you're running a plumbing company or an airline or whatever, these are the 10. To me, to just have something that was a bit of a checklist, yeah. uh, a mindset, a way to think about them, a way to go into these was a head start. Gave people a you know something that they could lean back on. Well, the leaders have heard all 10, but I would love to drill down on two of them and give some practical application, and then everybody's going to have to go get the book if they want more. But I'm curious about the second one, how to sell. You know, you're the you're the head of an airline, you're you're at the very top. You know, people would think, well, you're not on the sales team. You absolutely are on the sales team. And did you learn a framework or what's important for all of us to understand when it comes to selling? So everybody sells. Uh, in fact, it was Robert Louis Stevenson that said, uh, everybody sells something for a living. I spent the first 10 years of my career as a chief financial officer. And everybody would have thought, well, that, that guy's a numbers guy. He doesn't do any selling. I found that that's all I was doing. I was selling to my internal team. I was selling to investors who would put capital in. I was selling to everybody all day long was persuasion. And really, when you think about sales, it is listening effectively to another person to understand the problem they've got and come up with a solution that works for them. You're not mm. pushing a product they don't want. No. You're actually listening to something they need and helping them solve it. So to me, the, the sales uh, skills are really probably the most important ones that uh, you'll, you'll find it in the very top leaders. You're doing that internally, externally. You're doing that uh, all over the place. Yeah. Well, you know, our companies have changed. You know, we're coming through this crisis, coming out of a recession. So many of the people listening to this podcast, Joel, 
have uh, created new revenue streams, have dropped other revenue streams, have uh, changed their staff, have pivoted. Some of people lost their business and they're starting a new business. So it seems like maybe a final point that we could talk about is how to drive change. It's one of your 10 things that you need to understand to be an entrepreneurial leader. You know, the airline business right now is changing dramatically. You know, even before uh, all of this happened, how did you and do you think about change and how do you drive change when you've got, you know, sometimes tens of thousands of employees who are just used to doing the same thing the same way? Yeah, I think it starts out with embracing change. I think naturally human beings resist change. We like familiarity. We have our rabbit tracks. Well, this uh, thing that we've gone through with the coronavirus has forced change upon us. And some of us will uh, be energized by it and will naturally embrace it, figure out new new ways to do things. Other people will cower in fear and just be worried about it. I think it, our job is to help those who are worried about it to figure out what are the new needs in this new economy? What Who are the new customers? Right. I was just on a board call uh, today where uh, – we were talking about everybody has this need for homeschooling in a way that they never have had before. Mm. Parents are going nuts. How do we provide resources to them? And in this case, the company I was working with is says, uh, we're going to do it for free. We're just going to make it available to them to serve them. So, you know, th- there's a sense of community that says we're going to we're going to survive this change by drawing together, by building on the trust that we've got. And we'll figure it out when we come out of this. But I, I think you have to just not fear the change. I think it's the, probably the most important thing to think about. Well, it's incredibly important in today's day and age, change management and how you do it. And you got a lot of wisdom in the book. Joel, thank you so much for the gift of your time. The book is called Entrepreneurial Leadership. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. And if you are rebuilding your company or restarting a company or just trying to scale your company, plenty of wisdom in there for you. Joel, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Don. Nice to visit. JJ, just a personal question between you and me. Yeah. Could you tell that I got hung up and wanted him to personally coach me on how to give critical <laughs> feedback without hurting people's feelings? Was that, was it too obvious? Uh, so, uh, so subtle. So subtle. You rarely ever go in for like, you know, consulting advice with our, the people you're interviewing. So. And by rarely, you mean every week? Yeah. But yeah, very subtle. I thought it was very subtle and um, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a great episode of Building a Story Brand Podcast. Music is by Andrew Bell. <laughs> well, I, I just thought that was incredibly helpful. He, oh, he just yeah. seems so good at it. Yep. We have to know our liabilities and figure out what we need to get better at. I need to get better at feedback because I either don't do it or I do it not well. Yeah. Right? And so, anyway... I'm being authentic. That's called being authentic. It is. I'm We're an authentic, authentic leader. leader yeah, I wish you would be an authentic leader sometimes. <laughs> it's my critical feedback. And on my walls, all my walls that are up all the time. <laughs> JJ, you're the most authentic leader I know. Oh, thanks, Don. Grateful to know you. Just trying to be more like you. It's the whole job here. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Listen, uh, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. We weren't kidding about that. His music can be listened on Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to give an idiot feedback without hurting his feelings. <laughs> <laughs>